Hi, everybody. I have some exciting news. I am launching a Substack. I know. I keep telling you how I'm not a writer, and I'm still not a writer, but I am going to be writing about reading over on Substack. The Substack is called Unstacked, and you can find it at tracythomas.substack.com. There will be free options every Friday. There'll be a bunch of weekly roundups, announcements, all the shit I'm into. And then if you want to upgrade yourself to the paid subscription, I'm going to have author interviews, bonus episodes, anticipated reads, book pairings, community chats, all sorts of stuff. So, If that sounds like something you'd be into, go to tracythomas.substack.com and join Unstacked. And of course, I've got a special offer for you. If you go to tracythomas.substack.com slash the stacks 10, you get 10% off your first year membership of Unstacked. You have from now until April 4th to redeem. Again, that's tracythomas.substack.com slash the stacks 10 for 10% off Unstacked. Okay, that's enough. Let's listen to this episode. Welcome to The Stats, a podcast about books and the people who read them. I'm your host, Tracy Thomas, and we are joined today by Dante Stewart. Dante is the debut author of Shoutin' in the Fire, an American Epistle. Today, we talk about his book that focuses on the intersections of race, religion, and nationality, and he answers questions about a more inclusive Christianity and the voices that inform his work. The Stacks Book Club pick for October is Waiting to Exhale by Terry McMillan. We will be discussing the book on Wednesday, October 27th with Nicole Perkins. I am so lucky to make this show every single week. And the truth is, as a newly independent podcaster, I could not make this show without the Stacks Pack. That's a group of people who contribute monthly to this show. And in exchange for making a little book podcast possible, they get exclusive perks. Right now, that includes things like exclusive episodes, virtual book club chats, discounts on merch, and book recommendations from indie bookstores. All that is to say, if you like the show and want more of it, consider joining the Stacks Pack by going to patreon.com slash the Stacks. Some of our newest members of the Stacks Pack include Kiana Scott, Carrie Ann Sharit, Simon Marcus, Haley, Margot Guineau, Ilbersale, Emily, Joanne Woodbury, Aaron Caroline, and Catherine Keeney. Thank you all so much for joining the Stacks Pack. I really, really, really could not make this show without you and the rest of the crew. So thank you. All right, now it's time for you to hear from the wonderful Dante Stewart. All right, everybody. I'm very excited today. We have debut author of Shouting in the Fire, an American epistle, Dante Stewart. Welcome to the Stacks. Yo, what's up, Tracy? Good to be with you, my sister. I'm so excited that you're here. This is really a treat. I have only a hundred thousand questions for you. So I'm going to try to like get it together and ask you the really good ones. But I have so many questions. We always sort of start in the same place, which is in about 30 seconds or less. Can you tell us about the book? Yeah, 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 yeah. Cool, cool, cool. So at a 30,000 foot level, because that's, you know, if I'm on an airplane, if we if we traveling in the airport uh, and I'm going to pitch my book to you, yes. uh, I'm going to tell you just like I told the people uh, when, when they were deciding on if they wanted to Take a shot on me or not. So at a 30,000 foot level, my book is a real intimate, vulnerable, honest wrestling uh, with the question, what does it mean to be black and American and Christian and the ways in which those identities and my own kind of lived experience intersect in like the most beautiful and terrible ways possible. Um, It really was the the, the question at the heart of my book was likened to uh, the ways in which Audre Lorde wrestle with the ways in which she remember her life in her body, mm. uh, where in Zombie, she writes, and this is really what that question, the way I structured that sentence came from. She writes, I remember what it was like to be young and black and gay and lonely. Mm. And so each one of those experiences represented different things and they were connected, but they must be separated and wrestled with and wrestled through. But also they can't be too separate because each one of those things make us who we are. So me in particular, I wanted to wrestle with the question, what does it mean to be black and American and Christian? Because, you know, I'm in ministry, I'm black, I'm young, I'm married, I'm a dude, you know, I, yeah. I am, I, I, I am, I, I, I am straight and all these things, all these identities I needed to wrestle with mm-hmm. in the ways in which either I became the worst 
in those areas or I embodied the best of what they could become. And so, yeah, that's that's my pitch. That's okay, my we love it. Level. Now we can dive in. Yeah. We can come in for the descent, you know, in. kind of get into the nitty gritty. Yes. You already brought up things I want to follow up on, but I'm going to start where I plan to start, yeah. which is when did you realize that the three identities that you sort of tackle in the book, Blackness, Americanness, and Christianness, Christianity, were at odds? Like, when did it become mm. clear to you that mm. this was something that was worth unpacking or that that was mm. more than just who you were? Mm-hmm. Great question. Yeah, I think even growing up as a kid, I always was a questioner. I would be the, the kid that would look up into the sky and look at the Big Dipper and wonder about the Big Dipper. Uh, I would just not just like look at comic books, but I would want to know about them. I would not just read books, but I would want to know about them. I wouldn't do just art. And I, w- I would want to know about art and video games and things like that. So I was very inquisitive as a child and, and, and as a kid and even as I matured even you know, to college and beyond. And so even as I'm thinking about where were the beginning of that questioning, I have to go back home. Um, Even when I wrote in the chapter womb where Mm -hmm. uh, I learned what bodies were meant to be loved and what bodies were meant to be hated. And that so oftentimes, so many of us, as we've grown up in these kind of religious and social and civic institutions, many of us have experienced sometimes the best of those institutions and what they have to offer, but oftentimes you know, some people have experienced the worst. So I was actually talking not too long ago uh, with a friend and we were talking about the black church and I serve uh, in the historic black church, Tabernacle Baptist Church in Augusta. I, I'm a minister here. Um, and they, we were talking about church and, and you know, the ways in which so many Christians speak of either our religion in general mm-hmm. and, and the institution we've built in general in very pure narratives uh, or speaking about the black religious space in ways that's very triumphal, that collapses history, that makes it seem as if all black religious spaces were on the right side of civil rights mm. or on the right side of, you know, liberative movements during the 70s or the 80s or on the right side of Black Lives Matter or on the right side of Me Too, mm-hmm. on the right side of equality for LGBTQ uh, and others. And we came to the conclusion that, you know, if you're a black straight man, um, as I am, you your your experience of of the church may be a great experience in a sense mm-hmm. if we're thinking about what what that space protects you from mm-hmm. uh what that space justifies for you what that space allows you to do and to become but if you're a black woman or if you're black and young or if you're black and gay or L, like as uh, Audre Lorde said if you if you're in the LGBTQ community Oftentimes, the religious space is not a space of liberation, but it was a place of loss. Mm. It's not oftentimes a place where you feel like you can be free and question and become uh, the best of yourself and the best of your humanity. But oftentimes, it is a space where your humanity is devalued. And then sometimes it is destroyed. Mm. And so my memories of the beginnings of this question begins back in my Pentecostal church. But then it my Black Pentecostal church that I was raised in... There were so many things, even when we did not, uh, were not allowed to question. Mm-hmm. Um, I talk about my bishop in, in in the book and you you feel this tension of who I'm trying to become or who others are trying to become. The good that they're doing and teaching us who we should become in the mm-hmm. world and the type of consciousness and awareness that they are trying to help us embody and the character traits and the particular development they want for us. But oftentimes... You know, they didn't want us having too much fun. Right. <laughs> you know, they didn't want us asking too many questions unless we, you know, unless we start actually talking about power dynamics in whatever language 16, 17, 18 year olds talk about, right. you know, right. power right. dynamics uh, and things like that. And so the questions really became visceral, though, when I went off to college and uh, when I started to get inside of the white church. You know, there's so much that our black religious spaces protect us from Mm -hmm. that we are not forced to deal with. And that's a beautiful, beautiful thing. I want my children to be able to grow up in a world where they feel like they can have a childhood. Mm. And too oftentimes in our country, our childhoods are stolen from us either because uh, if we're thinking about black girls and black boys, either we are sexually assaulted and are sexualized way earlier than than we need to be. Or you think about that young black kids, as my students had to do, have to wrestle with what it means to, uh, to, to look at live or be reminded of the ways in which your body is hated within your country. Too often, 
our kids are forced to grow up in ways they never should have. And that's probably the beginning of that question. But then going to Clemson and then the white church is when that question was exacerbated. And it, in some sense, that episode in my life, probably in, indeed that question became the hardest to answer mm. and find my way through. I feel like one of the identities that you sort of have touched on so far in this conversation, but that isn't part of that central question of the book is also the cis maleness of you. Because I think, I think it's interesting when we think about America, blackness and the church, those are all spaces that are dominated by cis head men. And so I wonder why that part of you wasn't also part of the question. That's actually a really great question. Um, and in some sense, it was. I mean, it's in the book. You certainly talk about it, but it's not like the thesis. It's not part of that like thesis question yeah. that you lay out at the beginning. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I think for me, so much of it was kind of wrapped up in Christianness mm. because I think gender and sexuality and religion are so bound to what we believe to be marked in the created order. But then also on another level, I felt that that was not the book I need. In some sense, that was not the book I needed to write because I want to read like 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 even as I think about my friends who 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 are not cis and uh, uh, cis het males, I feel like for me I need their stories told. Sure, I need them to tell and write their stories. I need to write with care. Mm-hmm. Even when I went into my writing session, particularly in the chapter on wound, mm-hmm. like that chapter, I needed to wrestle with like gender and sexuality and these particular binaries that are so woven and interwoven into our ideas of morality mm. uh, and, and Christianity and orthodoxy. But also I needed to, you know, particularly write the story that was mine. Mm-hmm. And I think if I would have had to, yeah, I, yeah, yeah. I think in some sense, if I would have wrote that particular story, I do think that that would not have been fair to somebody else who must write it that must be free in their voice and their experiences. Because me, I only, in some sense, know the experience of being black, cishet male, but also I needed to write those who are not within my story with Mm -hmm. care and consideration in ways that said, like, I see you, I understand you, I want to weave those who embody your standpoint within my own Mm kind of critical narration of myself uh, in my own body. Um, but also I felt that like the most visceral question that I was asking what was not necessarily like the, what does it mean to like, like in some sense, what does it mean to be young and black and gay and lonely? Like, I don't know if that was the story that I needed to tell given my lived experiences as much as I wanted to, as a, I felt the responsibility mm. to weave their story. But I think also that's a great question that I will have opportunity to continue to write about yeah. and think about as someone who's beginning and learning and things of that such. But that is a brilliant, brilliant question <laughs> that I think you. was woven into how I approach yeah, my Yeah, I think crafting. it's in there. Like, I think you yeah. talk about it a lot. And it's something that, you know, I think the reason that I ask that especially is because of the football section. Um, when you talk about being oh, yeah. at Clemson, yeah. I just think of, you know, football spaces as being so like cis het men. Right. Oh, and yes. like that we're yes. talking so much about like masculinity in the most stereotypical, oh, yes. flat yes. possible ways, especially when we think not just of football, but like SEC Division One football, like that's a thing. Indeed. And so I feel Indeed. like, you know, starting at that point it starts to come up a lot more and like your masculinity starts to become such a part of the story. And so that's, that's what made me think of it. But I also want to ask you about, because I mean, what I really appreciate about what you've done in the book is you go into some icky stuff that you've been a part of, that you've perpetuated, Mm. that you've experienced. Mm. And a lot of that comes in relationship to the white churches that you were part of and mm-hmm. in relationship to the murder of black people and mm-hmm. sort of like the respectability politics and all of that. Mm-hmm. And so I want to know what it's like for you now to reflect mm-hmm. on some of the ickier parts of your life. And I want to know what mm-hmm. it felt like sort of then 
when someone tells you you're not like other black people versus what it feels like now when you think about those moments? Yeah, yeah. I, I think for me, like honesty and vulnerability had to be the way I wrote. The had to be in some sense the posture mm-hmm. that I took as a writer when I approached the story that I was trying to tell. Because, you know, if we think about religious literature in general, you know, this is why I like so much of religious literature, it does not resonate with so many people. Mm-hmm. Not only because so often, you know, our, our, the lie, our faith lives you know, are collapsed into this narrative that that believes that, you know, in order for me to feel like I matter and feel like I'm closer to God than somebody else must be put down. In order for me to feel like my space or faith matters, then I have to be the one who has all truth that that everybody must must ascend to or or ascend to when it comes to uh, their status in society and things like that, but also assent to when it comes to how they think about themselves, how they name themselves, how they name and act and walk in the world. You know, I felt that like out of that reality, so many people don't resonate because so much of our Christian literature is so either triumphal or it's in some sense bad writing in a sense because <laughs> so much of <laughs> you know I ain't gonna be too messy real quick but like you know I, I am in I'm in seminary and I'm in divinity school and and my space that I'm existing in right now is uh, is 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 uh, in the religious study and theology department my whole this this whole literal bookshelf mm-hmm. is stuff regarding theology history and ministry you know but oftentimes I say that so much of our literature is bad literature because so much of it is dishonest. Sure. And what I mean by dishonest is it does not tell the truth of our experiences in the whole picture mm-hmm. that does not depend on us being the hero in the end. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so for me, I could not be the hero in this story. I had to be so viscerally honest with myself because at the end of the day, 18-year-old me was 18-year-old me. Mm-hmm. 25-year-old me was 25-year-old me. Mm-hmm. And there are so many people who are still in those spaces. And there's so much harm that I did as those persons during those moments of which, you know, so much of that history and those realities still are with me. You know, the the, the reality is that, like, I had to write something honest and vulnerable because in some sense, writing was not going to, like, be full and final freedom and wholeness, but it was at least going to be a step in the right direction. Right. Um, and as a Christian, I felt like I had a responsibility to be as honest and vulnerable as I could because I believed that at the heart of my faith, you know, at the heart of my orientation toward the world, the way I make meaning is the reality that vulnerability and honesty is a pathway to liberation and not a pathway to losing and failing. And in some sense, failure is a part of that story as well, of which I did some incredible failure. You sure did. Whether it was an athlete <laughs> or whether it was as a husband or sure. whether it was as a friend or whether it was as somebody who performed a certain type of blackness for mm-hmm. white people mm-hmm. as a, or whether it was a person who you know, in some sense, weaponized and was weaponized and became a weapon and used it against us. Mm -hmm. That person of who I still am, because I'm still Dante, that's a part of my story. That's who I am. But also I felt like the way to freedom was saying, this is who I was. This is what I became. And this is the ways in which I change. Mm -hmm. And the story I want to tell is that change for us is possible. It's messy, it's hard, but it's possible in the life that we want, the value that we seek is in our change. You know, as Octavia Butler would say, God is change. Mm. And so it's this change that we find meaning and faith that I felt like, yeah, I needed to do. Yeah. Yeah, I need, I needed to do that. Yeah, I mean, it's really, I mean, the vulnerability that you talk about, it's ever present, especially in a lot of those scenes kind of in the, Post college mm-hmm. days, that, you know, it's sort of icky. Like it's, it's hard to it read. Is. But you know what? It's not. But you're not icky, and I've related so much to a lot of that. Like I've definitely had experiences where I've been congratulated for my closeness to whiteness mm-hmm. and felt like mm-hmm. good about that. 
you know? Mm-hmm. And like, oh, yeah. that was part of who I was also. And it, it's different for me slightly because I have a white mother. And so I have a mm-hmm. white family and like, mm-hmm. it gets more complicated. But I recognized a lot of myself in your writing about that. And I was mm-hmm. grateful that you did because I think a lot of black people have had experiences, even if it's momentary, you know, mm-hmm. being told like, mm-hmm. oh, you're not like other black people is mm-hmm. really truly a disgusting and horrible thing to say about black people but in that moment it feels like a compliment or it can feel like a compliment so i appreciate you writing about that yes yes Um, yes go ahead go ahead because we could could talk we could stay there like i we could stay there there, but but let's Let's stay there i don't i don't have to i have nowhere to go (laughs) yeah because like because like you know i was talking to one of my boys my best friend josh watson my boy one of my teammates and he was like, yo, bro, I've been reading your book. And he was like, bro, this thing has been really resonating with me because like so often, and me and Josh, we were roommates. We, that, that, man, that's my boy, my boy. And he said, you know, so often, you know, we gave so many people ourselves and believed that in giving them ourselves, they were finally going to make us worthy. Mm-hmm. That we were finally going to be accepted. We were finally going to be able to prove our worth and our value. And he was like, bro, you can't put, and I'm a literally, I literally was talking to him and I'm like, hey, bro, hey, hold on. Like, dog, let me, let me go get my journal out real quick because I need to write this down. I need to write this down. And he was like, yo, you can't put like your worth in other people's hands. He's like, yo, like we live so often for that praise. Because like as I grew up in the Black Rural South, you know, the, the, the message that we inherit, I talk about these stories, you mm-hmm. know, that we inherit, that we are simply performers in. To be in the Black Rural South, oftentimes is to believe to be believe ourselves to be less than or backward or wayward. Mm-hmm. And so it's like I personally come from a small town, uh, St. Matthew, South Carolina. I was in between St. Matthew, South Carolina, Swansea, South Carolina, and Sandy Run, South Carolina. You know what those in the Department of Education called our area? They called it the corridor of shame. Oh my God. That's what they called it. We were at the bottom of the bottom when it came to education and the, and the likes. You know, it was not because we couldn't attain, because we are graced with Viola Davis mm-hmm. and we are graced with Michael Coulter and we are graced with Alshon Jeffrey and so many wonderful, mm. wonderful people. That's, I didn't know that's, that. that's, yeah, yeah, yeah. Me and me and Alshon, we, that's my that's my dog. That's my dog. We we that's he my boy. He used to be we my wide together. receiver when I played uh, fantasy football, which I've since given up. Hey, yeah, that's <laughs> when my he was boy. a bear. That's my dog. Yeah, that's my dog. That's my dog. <laughs> uh, we we are graced with that, and we never believed ourselves to be locked into some type of corridor, and that the 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 story of our lives were quote unquote was simply a story of shame. But that's what other people thought about the thought about us. But it oftentimes affected how we thought about ourselves. Of course. So when so when people say, you know, hey, like when it's time to go for signing day and like, hey, let's go, let's go play some football. We playing football. It's not like, yo, let's go to the HBCU, which between Orangeburg, South Carolina, between Columbia, South Carolina, Denmark, South Carolina, and the surrounding areas, you have, it's full of HBCUs. It's full of black history and black excellence and black mm-hmm. creativity. But so often we inherit this story of like, yo, you got to get away as far as you can from the spaces that made you in order for you to make it in a world that does not love you. And so you have to become that type of person who put your worth and your acceptance in other people's hand. And you learn that. Guess where? You learn it at church. You learn it at school. You learn it when you're disciplined. You learn it when you're on the football field. And so we we believe that, you know, to be closer to success and to be closer to God and to be closer to ourselves is to be distant from blackness, to be closer to whiteness and white social space. And so, like, that's something that I felt like I felt like, yo, I had to go there, though, mm-hmm. like like because yes. like it was a part of so much of what I gave to white people during those critical moments in white churches was in some sense me trying to find ways to cope with my lack of self-love and mm-hmm. self-respect. And there is one quote by June Jordan, yo, that thing, that thing, it just blesses me. She mm-hmm. says, I am black. Uh, she says, I am a feminist, you know. And and my ideas, I'm paraphrasing her. She says, my ideas of being feminist are are as, as much in the same meaning of my idea about being being black. And it is this, that I need to love myself 
and respect myself as if everything depended on self-love mm. and self-respect. And my boy, when he when he when he is like he's like, bro, I can't go to wound, I can't go to wound yet, cause I'm on a flight. I gotta go back to Hawaii, bro. I ain't wanna I ain't wanna start reading it and miss something, you know. <laughs> so 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 he was like, hey, bro. He was like, hey, dog, like like your joint really told me like the heart of your book is that it's like we black folk ain't gotta be like them. We ain't gotta be accepted by them. We ain't gotta do this. We ain't gotta do that. We can love ourselves. Yeah. We can respect ourselves. We yeah. Can, and and as if everything depends on it. So I'll stop right there. No, that's okay. I yeah, I think you're right. And I think like sort of the the ways that the stories are written about us, not physical stories written about us, but like the ways that the story is told to us about what it means to be black and who is black and what mm-hmm. that looks like. I think all of that plays into it. You said like, you know, you learn it in, cur- in church, you learn it at school, but you also learn it on TV. You learn it Indeed. about the ways people talk about successful, quote unquote, black people versus not quote unquote, successful black people. Yeah. But I sort of want to flip this question and kind of rotate it to another part of your identity. Um, I should be mm-hmm. forthcoming with you. I was born and raised as Jewish. My mother is Jewish. Mm-hmm. My father was Christian, but he left the church I think he had some issues with the whiteness in the church, uh, but he was a ba- his mother was a Baptist and from, they're from the South. Anyways, long story short, mm-hmm. I think mm-hmm. some of the things we're talking about, about worthiness when it comes to black people and a proximity to whiteness, I think there's a similar sort of situation when it comes to Christianity, like a worthiness mm-hmm. and a closeness to the cis-het patriarchy. That whole thing is so deeply entrenched in Christianity and, you know, Mm -hmm. judgmental in the same ways we're talking about, um, Mm -hmm. exclusionary in the same ways we're talking Mm -hmm. about. Mm -hmm. And so as someone who's in the church now, who I've read your book, I know that a lot of those beliefs are not where you stand. I'm wondering Mm -hmm. how you see that the church can be a space for all Black people, right? Like when we Mm -hmm. talk about Black Mm -hmm. Lives Matter, that's period. It's not black cis het lives. It's mm-hmm. not black 100%. able-bodied lives. It's not black skinny lives. It's not black, you know, it's black lives, period. And I think like mm-hmm. the black church we see, you know, they're not, it's not a monolith, certainly. Blackness yeah, is not a monolith and neither is the black church. There's so many different kinds and so many different places, but sort of generally, super generally, or I guess specifically, how do you see the way forward mm-hmm. to be a black inclusive space in the church that includes non-Christians? Right. That oh, includes yeah, yeah, 100 yeah. all black people. Yeah. 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 100 percent. And I think and I think so much of those type of questions you wondering is so much a part of my journey and where I landed. Mm-hmm. You know, and, I think and, so. And, 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 <laughs> and it, it really was, you know, we, we, we always stumbled and fall into being better. Yeah. You know, becoming becoming more mature and becoming more whole. You know, it's you, you're gonna have some wounds along the way, certainly. Uh, but we need to figure out how how to become, as Alice Walker say, being able to be the type of people who see scars and turn them into worlds. Mm. And so, like when I think about that, when I think about that ability, because in some sense that sits at the heart of the question: How does one turn the scars of which the Bible, the church, our leaders, our history? our stories we tell ourselves, how do we turn those scars or how do we allow space where those scars in and of themselves, you know, because we have to give people agency, those whom we harm, we can't be the ones who fix their wounds. Mm -hmm. We are part of that healing work. But, you know, when we harm people, then that should kind of change our orientation toward them. We should allow them dignity, agency, and power within their own stories to be able to, in some sense, work for their own freedom given their context. But because I am a minister inside of the church, and this yeah. is part of my context, <laughs> I will say that, like, in some sense, we have. To, I think we have to read the Bible better. Like, I take the perspective that that there are many problematic passages and places in the Bible where we must say that that does not reflect the heart of God. Mm-hmm. And in some cases, because that does not reflect the heart of God, then that cannot reflect the way we embody our faith. Mm. You know, oftentimes, you know, the Bible has been this almost, as we was talking about in class the other day, the bo- a borderless text, a text in which transcends boundaries and borders, a text that transcends 
the ability to be criticized, uh, a text that transcends the ability to be wrestled with. But I think it's in the ability of wrestling with the text within our own stories and within our context that keeps this conversation alive and going. So, so much of my understanding of the Bible used to be very white, you know, uh, very white, very conservative, very in those kind of frameworks, those traditional frameworks, like my professor, uh, Walter Fluker say he laugh all the time. He say, you know, he's black professor. He says, you know, I used to be a white evangelical you know, as a black man. And I, I was the same way. And so right. being that type of person, embodying that type of tradition of faith, those traditions, our traditions always have with them ways that we talk about authority. And those authority and that story is always bound to power dynamics. As I write about what bodies are meant to be loved and what bodies are meant to be hated. And so if the church is to become a space where, you know, love, you know, that makes us free and whole and better can be a living reality and not just an abstract principle, then we have to do the critical work of thinking about our sacred text and the ways in which we need to be dislodged from it, deconstructed, and hold on to it. You know, because within any piece of literature, whether you believe it to be sacred or not, that piece of literature, that story, in some sense, is given authority by the community to which it uh, which ascribes it authority. Mm. You know, Tony K. Bambar and Tony Morrison are given authority uh, and James Baldwin are given authority. You know, yeah, they, their authority is universal uh, in some sense, in some capacity, but it's oftentimes they're given the type of authority they're given because we resonate and we're given meaning within those stories. Sure. Uh, Flannery O'Connor or, you know, somebody like, you know, uh, Walt Whitman and things like that. They're given authority because their their communities ascribe them authority. And so for us, I think we have to do that critical work of reading, but also rereading and re-narrating that story and trying to find better ways to think about ourselves and our faith. And that, in some sense, begins with how we relate to the Bible, not as a rule book, but a book of stories of which can, you know, help us understand meaning in our own stories, but oftentimes, you know, needs to needs to be, you know, deconstructed. Yeah. There's a story of Howard Thurman, the great mystic uh, who wrote Jesus and the Disinherited, says Christianity became the religion of the oppressor and the powerful should not make us believe that that was the case in the mind of Jesus. And oftentimes our religious traditions, be it Christian, be it uh, uh, Judaism, be it uh, um, Islam, be it uh, Buddhism and the likes, you know, so often our traditions, because of history and the and our inherited stories and the ways history uh, shapes things, they they oftentimes are, are not in line with the best of our traditions. Right. And I would say that you know that that too often you know we believe that our traditions are pure and they're purely moral and things like that. But I'm saying you know like yo, we need to criticize our tradition and we need to try and embody the best of our tradition. And I think for me, so much of that was expanding the canon, you know? Mm-hmm. Uh, we, we, we talk in uh, canon language in literature and in religion. You know, a canon is simply a body of work that a community ascribes meaning and guiding principles. This, right. this canon uh, kind of guides how we think about our own self-identity and self-conception and what, what we want to embody in the world. And so for me, when whenever I got to the point where I was like, yo, it's time for me, you know, to leave these white spaces. It's time for me to reimagine my faith. It's time for me to try and tell a better story. Then I could not continue to like listen to the same voices. I needed to get better voices. If we want to experience a better faith, we need better voices. Right. You know, if we that that does not mean that we're going to indeed like like that, that is going to actually happen all the time. But we do want to position ourselves that we embody the best of what we can become. Mm-hmm. And that means that I needed to give up, you know, those white voices and those white men, those those white, you know, straight men, those black straight men. I needed to go to black literature. You know, I needed to read queer theology and queer theory. I need to read Judith Butler uh, and have Judith Butler in conversation with Katie Cannon or Judith Butler in conversation with Jesus. Mm-hmm. I needed to have mm-hmm. James Baldwin in conversation with Jesus. Uh, I needed to go to Tony K. Bambara and see the ways in which the lessons that the children learn on the street can be the same lessons that I learned from children that I'm teaching at a private Christian school. I needed to learn that the same sermon that Baby Suggs was preaching about loving your flesh could be the same way that others around me could love their flesh and that I could become better at talking about the ways in which my faith does not love flesh. And we need to have a little bit more body and a little bit more flesh in the way we think about ourselves. 
that meant that I needed to go to James Baldwin and look in the fire next time and say like, yo, if the concept of God cannot make us more free and more loving, then we need to get rid of it. And so being critically examining the ways in which my faith did not make other people free, but oftentimes kept them bound. I needed to take on better voices through black literature, through black arts, through our dancing, through black studies, through so many different spaces. I needed to go back home to my black Pentecostal upbringing mm -hmm. that I oftentimes devalue because they had something to say. And as Terrion Williamson writes in her book, Scandalize My Name, that their world making, the worlds that black people make, is as much a starting point as others. And so for me, I think answering your question, can the church become a space of healing? And if it can, how can it become that space? We need to take on better stories. There are aspects of our faith that we need to deconstruct and dismantle. You know, that if our traditions and our theologies and our, our ideas about what is right and what is moral and what is beautiful and what is creative and what is loving, if these ideas that we inherit and embody does not make us more loving, does not make us more humble, does not make us more free, then these ideas must be dismantled. Because last time I read, Jesus says in John 10, 10, that, I, that the enemy, that the thief comes to steal, to kill and destroy. But I have come in, in some sense in resistance to those ways of stealing, killing and destroying the ways in which our traditions and our institutions and our own individual lives oftentimes steal from others, steal their dreams, steal their money, steal their land, steal their resources. We often kill their bodies. Mm. We kill their dreams. We kill their ability to love and be free. We oftentimes destroy uh, their bodies, destroy their personhood, destroy their humanity, destroy their ability to have a voice and, and find a home in our communities. If indeed, though our religions and our, our ideologies and our traditions are those that steal, kill, and destroy, and Jesus says that he came to have life, if our what I embody in my faith does not bring life, then I need to get rid of it. Yeah. Because it does not help me, and it does not help anybody else. Taking care of your health isn't always easy, but it should be at least simple. That's why for the last Three plus years, I have been drinking AG1 every day, no exceptions. It's just one scoop mixed in water once a day, every day, and it makes me feel nourished and strong enough to tackle whatever else might come my way. That's because each serving of AG1 delivers my daily dose of vitamins, minerals, pre and probiotics, and a lot more. It's a powerful, healthy habit that's also powerfully simple. The nutritional insurance that AG1 provides has been vital to keeping me productive and focused. It helps me cover my bases in just about the time it takes to fill a glass of water, scoop in one scoop of AG1, and then drink it. So I don't know, 75 seconds? With the perfect mix of vitamins, probiotics, and nutrients from Whole Foods, I'm not stuck trying to assemble it all by myself, which would have considerably worse results. AG1 saves me all the time and hassle, and it has made such a difference in my overall mood and especially my gut health, among many other things. But don't take my word for it. Go ahead and try AG1. Let me know what you think. Whether you notice you're needing more nutrient support than you're used to, or you just need an edge for a tough workout, AG1 can be the ticket. If there's one product I had to recommend to elevate your health, it's AG1, and that's why I've partnered with them for so long. If you want to take ownership of your health, start with AG1. Try AG1 and get a free one-year supply of vitamin D3, K2, and five free AG1 travel packs with your first purchase exclusively at drinkag1.com slash the stacks. That's drinkag1.com slash the stacks. Check it out. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be Continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, 
The learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast. I'm having a hard time even thinking of my questions because you keep giving me so much more to talk about. <laughs> like you're really, you're really messing with my flow. I'm just kidding. No, but you, I'm sorry. No, you I'm brought up stop. so many, yeah. you brought up so many good points. Um, one of the things that it made me think of is, um, are you familiar with, I'm going to make sure I say this right, Kintsugi? Have you ever heard that? It's the Japanese pottery where if like a oh, piece Oh, yeah, yeah, breaks, yeah, the joint but that's broken and you put the gold in. Oh, girl, don't make me preach. I'm about to preach. That's, that's what a, that that's made a me sermon. think of. I mean, that's what, what you're saying made me think of is like, if we don't have the right things, we got to break it and like mm. let the good stuff come through. Like I was visualizing like the gold, the gold in between oh, some we of can the stay shit. There. But oh, I think- and one of the ways you talk about this in the book, it's sort of like a little glimpse of like a way to change the thinking. At least that's how I read it was when you talked about mm. how rage is part of the gospel and how rage is like mm. the good news and and the rage mm. is there. And I think like one of the things I went to Catholic school, so I have a little Christian understanding. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's again, not my religion, not my thing. Like I'm really not mm. that religious. I love a tradition, but I don't particularly care for doctrine so much. Um, that being said, one of the things I don't, that has always irritated me as a cynical person is how mm -hmm. obsessed Christianity is with this idea of love, which to me yeah. feels really antithetical to a lot of the text, right? Like so much, especially the first or the Old Testament, the Hebrew scriptures. Again, a Jewish person who went to Catholic school, we studied oh, this yeah. stuff. Yeah, but like yeah, yeah, that's, yeah. there's really not a lot of love there. And I know that like a lot of the Christianity stuff and like the Jesus stuff is in the second half and that's like where the love comes through or whatever. <laughs> but I think that like if you're, if you're, religious book is based on two texts mainly right the old and the new Indeed. testament Indeed. and the old testament is basically about like being vindictive killing things starting over burning mm. the shit down and then you're like but our whole religion is based on love it's like well actually your whole yeah. religion isn't based on that like let's take it back yeah, but yeah. i and that's what i appreciated about what you had to say about rage is like that that is part of christianity mm. that is part of the text and i think more honest readings of the scripture, you know, we're all adults here. We can handle it. Yeah. But I think it's we like can. the bullshit about like everything is love and, and Jesus is mm. all good and God is all good. And it's like, well, God's not all good. Like, do you remember what he did to so-and-so? And like, mm. like, I don't know. I feel like uh, uh, Pilar, Pilar or whatever, looking back at the salt, like, yeah. <laughs> I feel like she might oh, not yeah. feel like that was all love, you know? And like, yeah, that's real. So I appreciate the ways that you sort of bring that gold that gold mm -hmm. leafing into into your looking um because i guess the question there is like do you feel like christianity is asking specifically black people but i guess generally anyone who believes in christianity to feel or be less mm, that's a really great question i'll preface you know, take what I say with a grain of salt as I'm continuing to learn. Sure. So I'm gonna leave. I'm gonna leave the harder questions to the scholars, to, yes. the, to the scholars sure. in the room. So I will say that in some sense, like you know, I am growing and learning in my knowledge, particularly as it relates to you know our history and things like that. And one of the things that you know, I think in some sense, yes and no. So like my background's in sociology, and my field now is in theory and theology. And so there, there's always these questions must be nuanced in a sense, like, you know, there maybe, maybe not. In some instances, yes, in sure. some instances, not. Especially when we think about, you know, the the the, the biblical text. Like, I'm, I'm of the perspective that, like, particularly as I'm thinking about the ways in which women scholars read the Bible in, in the likes of Emily Towns or M. Sean Copeland or Katie Cannon, who sits above my shoulder, or even the ways in which black theologians in the critical times of the 70s, 80s and 90s, uh, read the text as well and things like that. When I think about what, what they're thinking about the Bible, you know, they're saying, you know, yes, something can be problematic and still sacred. Mm. You know, something can be problematic and exist. Like there's no this kind of one justification for all things that go on at all times. But we need to talk about these moments and, and, and avenues of looking at the biblical text in ways that, you know, we can still develop meaning in the sacred text while also being able to deal with and embrace the messiness. And so at some moments, you know, there, there are going to be times where we say, you know, hey, 
Ah, uh, yeah, that works. And there are going to be times where we say, no, that does not work. And so I would say more so that like, like, like in some sense, does our religion require that we be less than? It it depends. It, it depends on, on on the context because, like I said, we there, there's no such thing as a singular Christianity. Or sure. even when you think about Judaism and in many traditions, and I think you know, not as a way of saying you know we're not a monolith. So that people, you know, what them white evangelicals, the religious right, are doing, you know, that's not us. No, at the end of the day, that is us. And we need because guess what? When I step out into this world. I don't step out into this world, you know, hey, I'm a black Christian. I'm not, I'm a progressive Christian. I'm this, I'm that, I'm this right. and that. No, it's all about what other people experience of me and the community that I re- represent in name. Mm. So whether I believe me and Donald Trump don't, in some sense, there's discontinuity. There's continuity between what me and Donald Trump represent in the world. And I need to deal with that to say, that Donald Trump, he's the worst of my tradition. Sure. Those white evangelicals, they're the worst of our tradition. Those black people uh, who are up, upholding uh, those who hate, who are anti-LGBTQ, those who uphold the ways in which black men assault others and, and justify their domination of others, uh, those who, in some sense, devalue others, they're the worst of our traditions. And it's inside of that, not distancing myself from them, but saying, okay, there's continuity and discontinuity, and that's the complexity, that's the tension of living, that's the tension of faith. Mm. It is in that that we're better able to embody what we believe to be the best of what we can be and can become. And so this is why I felt like rage was so necessary for me to write about because the kind of public idea of Christianity, especially when you're thinking about Dylan Roof, when you're thinking about you know George Floyd, when you're thinking about, oh my goodness, the, uh, with, with Botham John and his younger brother, mm. I was absolutely fuming mm-hmm. at his brother hugging that white girl mm-hmm. in, in quote unquote forgiveness. And, and in some sense, Ugh. looking at the ways in which many in the Christian community responded to him hugging her. It was like, nah, in that moment, in that moment, nah, I, I didn't <laughs> want to hug her. She would have had to see me. We had to throw some hands. Like, I, yeah. I, and I told my wife, I said, if I ever get murdered, like, like that, like, like you don't need to and, forgive and, like, today, okay? Like take no, a few years, mourn my death first. Thanks. <laughs> like, 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 legit. Like, like if I no, 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 don't, don't, don't give nobody no hug because guess what? What, what tends to happen is we believe that our expression of forgiving those who harm us will make us closer to God, right? And that belief has justified all types of violence has justified all types of oppression, has justified all types of terrible things. Mm. When we put things that harm us, whether you're thinking about, you know, it's funny, you know, thinking about the Exodus narrative. We just were free from Egypt and now we exterminate the Canaanites. Mm -hmm. And then like, like it's that, it's the complexity of that. Like we came from this and this is what we became. That oftentimes that belief, you know, we, we can bring God on the side of our violence. We can bring God on the side of our oppression. We can bring God on the side of our devaluing others. And I felt like, yo, in some sense, I didn't even, like a part of me wanted to go to the Bible because I talked about the story of Nehemiah and the ways in which, you know, if somebody was like, yo, you need to reread the Bible and I wanted to do that, that's what I was doing. I wanted to do a certain type of rereading to say like, yo, rage exists at the heart of what we want to talk about when it comes to our faith. Mm. So like, even when I think about this idea of rage and the way I wanted to write about rage, I wanted to write rage as like a spiritual virtue that can be helpful, mm-hmm. you know, in the ways that we think about how we embody our faith and what world we dream and imagine for ourselves and for other people. So like when I when I did that certain type of rereading of the biblical story of, of Nehemiah, you know, I wanted to say like, yo, like the same word for his rage and his anger is the same words in the Christian scriptures that we use for Jesus' idea of compassion. It uh, it consumed his very being. It was that which was the very public expression of his pi- private ideas. And it was the public expression of his inward reality. And so rage did not in some sense disconnect him from God, but it pressed him deeper into Mm. into God. Rage did not disconnect him from other humanity, but it pressed him further into their humanity and what he needed to do to make sure that they were human and were able to be seen and loved and protected. And I think too often anger in general 
is not seen as a virtue, but it's seen as a vice because we believe that like, we believe that oftentimes, you know, God wants us to put up with a world that oftentimes harm people more than God wants us to get out and get our hands and feet dirty to make sure that they are free. And this is oftentimes at the heart of so many people's inability to talk about black suffering and black death mm-hmm. or any suffering or any death for that matter, mm-hmm. because we believe that, you know, the thing that we really need to talk about is 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 love and unity and coming together. But as I rem- I'm reminded of, you know, of the sister, I can't remember her name. She said unity is good, but freedom is better. Hmm. And I think, you know, in order for me to get to that better, then I need to have something within my arsenal, you know, that allows me not to just uh, lie or, or about reality or or make reality a fantasy, but would make me like be honest, like yo, like the situations that many people find themselves in in our country, in our churches, in our institutions are not right, and they mm. need to change. And that I need to use whatever art and creativity or theology or witness that I can do or friendship that I can be or or whatever I need to use whatever I can that I have been given as a gift to make other people free, not as, you know, something that's just simply, you know, to be like, yo, let me get mine. You know, I'm good over here, but nah, nah, nah. As, as Audre Lorde write about like the use of anger, the use of anger is to break the silences, mm-hmm. you know, and sister I, outside of where she talks about the end of the transformation of silence to language, that there are so many silences to be broken. Mm. And the way I wanted to write about, you know, rage is to, in some sense, contextualize it and historic, historicize it, because I talked about the difference between white rage and black rage in, in our public memory, the ways in which we remember white rage. And oftentimes when black people are angry, we are not judged by the anger and the visceral feeling that we feel when it comes to being in a system in a country and oftentimes in churches and uh, and communities that devalue us and disempower us. But oftentimes we're judged against the terrible things and ways white people have become. And this is the response that people have Mm -hmm. because they know what white people have done and they don't want to quote unquote, allow us to have that same power. And so even the ideas of rage and anger and religion and what we embody in some sense, is is very anti-black in the way we think about it, um, or in some sense, is very triumphant and abstract because it just simply says, you know, you got to forgive, you can't be angry, you got to forgive, you got to forgive, you got to forgive. Well, I'm just not there yet. Mm. Um, I may not be there yet, you know, yeah. or I may not want to, uh, but I want to push against systems of dominance, and I can't push against those systems of dominance, you know, in the same ways that like the system gave me the same tools that it gave me back to Audre Lorde, right. the master's tool yeah. cannot dismantle the master's house. And what are the, the tools that we've been given, especially we think about anger. I think that there's no room for it. Yeah. And for me talking about rage in that section of my book was trying to figure out in conversation with Carol Anderson in conversation uh, with Audre Lorde, in conversation with Jesus, in conversation with Fanon and Alice, uh, Angela Davis and Fred Hampton, and even, you know, back in the day to Richard Allen and and and, and even today to Black Lives Matter, uh, I wanted to think about this, this the relationship between the Bible, the body, Blackness and rage that can be life-giving that just doesn't simply say, you know, you need to just simply quote unquote love and everything will be okay because in some sense, you know, rage can be an expression and is fundamentally expression of love because I want people who are mute and invisible to be broken from the silence mm-hmm. and be free. Yeah. Okay. This is like such a hard turn because we have to talk about writing, but I don't have a graceful transition. So oh, that's cool. before we get to like the actual writing part, I want to know about the title of the book. And I have a very specific question, which is the title of the book is Shoutin' yeah. in the Fire. And I think you do a great job of explaining that in the book. So I'll leave that part to the reader. I want to yeah. talk about the subtitle, An American Epistle. Why did you pick epistle? Why didn't you call it a memoir? What was that choice? Because I know that's a choice. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that choice was really likened to Baldwin, really, really a nod to Baldwin and the fire next time. Um, And even the black tradition that I come from. Um, So much of black writing uh, and and our literary traditions are rooted in letters in some sense, very intimate, personal writing that in some sense, you know, were, were creative essays, was memoirs and things like that. It was a nod to that tradition and that type of writing that I come from. So, Really doing it as an epistle, 
you know, was saying like, these are my letters to myself. Mm. These are letters to black people. These are letters of love to black people. To 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 these are letters about what I think about Jesus and Jesus and and, and black religion. Uh, these are letters to white people and what I think about whiteness and and white supremacy. These are letters to my younger self. These are letters to my children, to my wife, uh, to black writers that I come from. And so I want I chose that epistle, you know. For that, but also I thought it sound good too. Mm-hmm. You know, like when it come out, when it come off the tongue, you know, it sound it sound good. You know, yeah. when when people see it in stores, you know, an American epistle will make them go like, hum, like, mm. like hmm. I felt like memoir was like, I felt like it wasn't like creative in a sense. Like, yeah. it just you can't just be like you know shouting in the fire a memoir. Yeah. That just don't that just that just don't feel good. Yeah. That don't okay. feel like. <laughs> Creative, but also it was about Kiese's joint, an American memoir, yeah. the way he did it, yeah. and the way he kind of flipped the American memoir on uh. his head. And what I wanted to do was like in what in, in, in what Kiese was doing it, you know, but also I wanted to particularly do that story as a black Christian. Mm. And what does it mean to do that, you know, as you know, not saying Kiese is not a black Christian or the church doesn't form Kiese, but like that being like the the front question. Right that I'm wrestling with as a writer, the genre that I'm trying to write in. So, yeah. Um, That leads me to my next question, which is you mention not just in the book, but also like I've heard you talk and I I read your tweets and all those things. You mention a lot of other writers that have inspired and influenced you. I'm wondering Mm -hmm. how you kind of incorporated their work into your own work. Yeah, 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 yeah. Well, first of all, you know, I felt that like, like, like we were talking earlier, like if we want to embody better, then we need better voices. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, I, I like when, when when I read James Baldwin and Drew Hall, my white brother, uh, coming out of the white church. When when Drew Hall gave me Martin Luther King's Where Do We Go From Here, that was the first book by a black person I had ever completed. Mm. You know, and I'm I'm a grown man at this time, and and I I hadn't you know you know I hadn't read anything by anybody black. You you see my office, my office is full of books now, but mm-hmm. like during that month, this is only literally since 2017. Mm. Uh, or, or, or whatnot, that I became like a reader like this because I felt like I needed to know, I needed to figure out. And for me to figure out, I had to return to Black literature, you know? So I personally wanted to read Black literature as sacred texts. That that when I think about sacred texts, you know, I think about the texts that give us meaning, that shape how we name, see, and act within the world, that shape our vision and values, that shape the best of what we want to become. And so, like, I needed to go to, like, Alice Walker to understand my mother being a nurse mm. and the ways in which in her joint uh, In Search of Our Mother's Gardens, she take that which was used against black women, the term womanish, and she made it into something beautiful that changed generations. And so for me, like, leaning on black literature was me trying to be a part of a noticeable tradition. So, mm-hmm. like, I wanted when people read my book, I wanted them to be like, yo, like, like he's in the tradition of Robert Jones and Disha Filia and and Mateo and and Kiese and Tanahasi um, and Maurice Ruffin and just all these brilliant writers like Jasmine Ward and and uh, Sarah Broom and just all these brilliant writers. I wanted people to be like, yo, he's in that noticeable tradition. So I needed to work black literature within how I interpreted my own story, like the way I approached the craft of writing. People needed to not just be introduced to me. Uh, but they needed to be introduced to voices that shape how I understood and told my own story. Mm. So yes, people will read about Dante Stewart, but I also wanted them to know about Bell Hooks and Katie Cannon and Franz Fanon and Baldwin and just all these brilliant, brilliant black creative voices that shape so much of this country, right. um, but also shape so much of my own religious understanding. And so, yeah. Love that. Okay, this is, you listen to the show, so you know about this question. How do you like to write? Where are you? How often? Do you have music? Mm -hmm. Are you eating snacks? Are you drinking beverages? Are you lighting candles? Kind of set the scene for how you write. Yeah, so it's it's 4.40 in the morning. I get up in the morning. uh, I go and I wake up. I get my phone. I hit hit the off button and I go and and I work out. My first hour is working out. Then I shower and then I come downstairs. So so from five o'clock to six o'clock, um, working out. I shower um, and then go downstairs, My co- get my coffee made up and things like that. And then I sit down in my office. I open up my blinds. I turn on uh, my lamp in, on my desk. I turn on my lamp in the corner. I'm surrounded by pictures of, of four of my influences, James Cone, Katie Cannon, Tony Morrison, and James Baldwin. 
because I want them, I want to take them into every writing session, mm. both as an inspiration, but as being involved in how I think about myself and think about my writing. And so I write, you know, I'll read. Well, actually, first thing I do is I read. So I always read before I write. So I'll, if I'm going in for like a 30 minute session of writing, I'm going to read for maybe 10 minutes and then write for 20 minutes. That's I wrote my whole book that way. Wow. Um, I'm going to I'm going to I'm going to read for like 10 minutes and I'm going to write for like 20 minutes. So like when I was writing my last chapter, my reading sessions consisted of reading every last chapter of Jasmine Ward's books. So I'm I'm reading constantly and I'm mm. going over and over and over and over again. As I'm going through certain sections, I'm reading um I'm reading Robert Jones joint The Prophets. As I'm going to different sections, I'm reading the way Disha did her short stories um and things like that. I'm going in, I'm reading the way uh Sarah Broom built worlds and NK Jameson built worlds or like the vulnerability of Kiese. Mm-hmm. You know, because when I get finished with whatever I'm getting finished and getting done with that, I want people to notice that. I want them to feel that. Mm. So I hope by the time you and others finish that you felt like, okay, yeah, I can see Kiese in this. I can see Jasmine in this. I can see, you know, Sarah Broom in this. I can see them. I can see Baldwin and Morrison, but also, you know, this is his. Yeah. This is this is his. And so I'll do that. And then this is the most important part. I write to the same music. I Ooh. wrote my book to one song. I read my audio book to one song. I put one one headphone in and then I had the microphone, their, their headphones on, and I had this song in it to help me with pacing. So if you notice about my writing, my writing is very paced. Yeah. Like it has a cadence to it. And the cadence of the writing was like based on Max Richter's. It's Max Richter, uh, the exhibition. Okay, I have to go so, yeah, listen. I'll turn that on. I'll turn that on and then I'll get to writing. And then once I'm done with those 20 minutes of writing, I'm on to my day. And then what are your snacks and beverages? Sounds like none. Yeah, no, I don't. I don't snack while I'm writing. Uh, only thing I do is coffee and water. I have to be honest. I knew you were going to say that when you said you woke up at 440 in the morning because I just knew you're not my people waking up at 440 to exercise <laughs> first. I want to die. Um, OK, this this is important, <laughs> though. What's a word you can never spell correctly on the first try? Oh, a word. Um, inconvenience. Ooh, that's a hard one. Yeah, inconvenience. And like, 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 I'll send people like, hey, I'm sorry for inconveniencing you. And it takes me forever <laughs> to spell inconvenience. Like, yeah. does the I come before E? Where does the V at? Where's the C? Where's the O? Like, well, how do these letters get around? Like, inconvenience, I can't, yeah. I think one, there's that two C's, time. right? There's an in, there's an convenience has two C's. Yeah, it's a yeah, nightmare. Yeah, it's a nightmare yeah, of a word. Yeah. Um, yeah, that's why I write and don't edit. Yeah, I truly, I'm with you. I can't spell. So. I can't spell either. Um, okay, <laughs> my last two questions for you. One, and I think we probably mentioned a lot of them. So if there's any more you want to yeah. add to the mix, um, yeah. for people who love Shouting in the Fire, what's another book you would recommend to them? Oh, yeah. So um, I can actually send you this. So I put together a playlist and a reading list oh, that yes. goes along that. Uh, shout, along with Shouting in the Fire. So like I, I saw Tarana Burke put together her joint. Shout out to Tarana and Unbound. She put together a playlist and a reading list. And I was inspired by that. That was a brilliant, brilliant, brilliant. Um, and so I put together a, a playlist and a, and a reading list um, I can share with you. But I think one book that I would tell people to read in, in conversation with Shouting in the Fire, probably would be, all right, I'll name two. Men We Reaped by Jasmine Ward mm-hmm. and Heavy by Kiese. Yeah, I mean- Just two books we love around here. Yeah, those are the two books that shaped pretty much everything. The, my approach to crafting, the skill of writing a memoir. Um, yeah, but definitely uh, also uh, Elizabeth Alexander's The Black Interior. Mm. That book- Yeah, I I swear by that book. Yeah. Okay, here's my last question for you. If you could have one person, dead or alive, read this book, who would you want it to be? Jasmine Ward, hands down. Easy. That was easy. Love it. We love to see it. Yeah, yeah, too easy. Yeah, Jasmine Ward. That like, like I, I, I want. You know, I would love Jasmine to read. I feel like we could get this book to her. If if anybody can get it to, so I got a, I actually got a dream list real though. So like, I want Ava (laughs) do. See, you you asked me one person, but I'm gonna go ahead and name off some names real quick. Okay. So like just putting it into the universe. Yeah, I'm putting I'm putting it out there, you know, good vibes, you know, putting it out there. Uh I would love LeVar Burton to read it. Mm. I would love Ava DuVernay to read it. I would love Nikki Giovanni to read it. Mm. I would love Denzel Washington to read it. Okay. Um, because me and Denzel have the the Pentecostal upbringing. I see. Um, and I love I love I love I love Denzel. 
Of course, the Obamas. I would love the Obamas. Of you course, gotta have the Obamas. Gotta have the Obamas. And also, you probably have to throw in Oprah. I feel like while we're doing, of it. course, yeah. Like, 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 I'd be like, "Hey, Oprah, like, like, I want Oprah to read it and be like, 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 you know, hey, what if I look up and get like a book, book, book club, like, yeah. join, like, like, Oprah, like, show me some love, like, I, I want Oprah to read it. Um, but more than anybody, I ain't gonna lie, and he can't read it because he, because, because he has dementia. Like, I want my granddaddy to read this joint because mm. I felt like, like, my granddad and my grandma. I want them, and you know, like you, you, you know, in the book, you yeah. know, I want them to have this and read this, and they're up, they're up at eighties, and so you know, they're on the back end of life in some sense, you know, and I, I would want my granddaddy to read this book. I wish I could travel back in time when he had that mental capacity to, 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 to do what he do, and, and, and to be able to like show him what I became, mm. you know, and, and things like that, because he don't know me, you know, he yeah. know me, but he don't know me, yeah. Um, so yeah. Uh, and he, your grandparents are really great parts of the book too. Yeah. Some really great chapters. Yeah. Okay, everybody. Um, on that note, sort of a little somber, but it's okay. So is life. Um, Dante's book is Shouting in the Fire, an American Epistle. You can get it anywhere you get books. It's out in the world. Dante, thank you so much for being here. Oh, yeah. It's been a blessing. And I count it a great gift to be able to converse with you um, and be with you and your community. Thank you so much. And everyone else, we will see you in the stacks. Thank you all so much for listening and thank you to Dante for being my guest. I'd also like to thank Elise Goldsmith-Weissman for helping coordinate this interview. Remember, the Stacks Book Club pick for October is Waiting to Exhale by Terry McMillan and we will be discussing the book on Wednesday, October 27th with Nicole Perkins. If you love the show and want inside access, head to patreon.com slash the stacks to join the Stacks Pack. Please make sure you're subscribed to The Stacks wherever you listen to your podcasts. And if you're listening through Apple Podcasts, be sure to leave us a rating and a review. For more from The Stacks, follow us on social media at The Stacks Pod on Instagram and at The Stacks Pod underscore on Twitter. And check out our website, thestackspodcast.com. Our editor is Christian Duenas. Our graphic designer is Robin McCrate. And our theme music is from Tagiragis. The Stacks is 